everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Hello and welcome back to the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. Now, Cindy and I, we have concluded season six of the podcast. And so now we've entered our throwback sessions where we go back and we identify some of our favorite episodes or perhaps episodes that we think are relevant for this particular time of the year. So we're going to focus this throwback episode on Dr. Wendy Ross. And I know I heard so many people reached out to me and said, oh, Cindy, I love that episode with Dr. Wendy Ross because she talks about serendipity and creativity. And she talks about how serendipity is a disruptor in learning. So if you're on a pathway and you're trying to teach your students something and all of a sudden there's a disruption, that's where serendipity comes into play. And to build on that in the episode, I've, I really liked it when we spoke about the idea of the classroom environment as well. And so when you're responding to this kind of disruption, or maybe you've hit a roadblock in your idea, particularly, I think I remember talking about student projects, where you feel like you kind of like your project's gone off the rails. It's a case of just sitting back and being open and receptive to things that exist in your environment, identifying things that perhaps you haven't seen before, or noticed before and using those as inspiration to help you get over that road bump. So without further ado, here is Dr. Wendy Ross. Wendy Ross is a senior lecturer in psychology at London Metropolitan University. She is also chair of the Serendipity Society, and her research looks at the role of serendipity in creativity, using everything from experimental methods to ethnographic work. Before becoming an academic, she was a high school teacher, and she retains a strong interest in pedagogical applications of her work. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so excited to talk about, let's start with serendipity. Can you give us your definition of serendipity? Yes. So for lots of people think that serendipity is just about good fortune and therefore something which is out of our control. Um, But actually serendipity is a much more precise term than that. So serendipity refers to the mixture of accident and sagacity. And in sagacity, in this case, we mean sort of wisdom or knowledge or the way to use accidents. So it's really um, a term that's used to help us to understand how we interact with with a contingent world or the world which we can't plan for, rather than just being the idea of just pure luck that sort of strikes or doesn't strike. So it's actually quite a, I find it quite a positive term because you are looking, things can happen to you, but it gives you a sense of control back, which maybe other forms of looking at chance and luck that give you a chance to do. Interesting. So can you tell us about the relationship between creativity and serendipity? Um, So I find this really interesting, and there's not an awful lot of research on it. There is, um, I do actually have a book coming out at the start of next year, which is an edited collection with various different people reflecting on the relationship between serendipity and creativity. I think it happens on multiple levels. So I think Um, The most obvious one really is that there are moments in any great creative life, sort of a big C type, pro C type people, when something, they get their big break. 
And Chitsi Mahali talked a lot about this. He, when he interviewed the creative people, most of them said that the main reason they were successful was because of luck. Something happened that was that, that they then took advantage of, and they usually had to take advantage of it. They usually had to do something, be the right person in the right place at the right time. So on that really broad level, um, there is within most creative professionals, professional trajectory, there are moments where they were just lucky and they were able to take advantage of that and they had the right skills and they were in the right place at the right time. But then on sort of a minor level, if we go down to we think about sort of small C creativity and little C creativity in the, and the, the creativity we are every day, there are then moments in which we interact with the world and we respond to the world in such a way that it gives us ideas, it generates ideas for us. So, and, and again, this is, this is a big example, but take, for example, Archimedes um, in the bath when he had his eureka moment. He was just happened to be sitting in the bath. He was asked to develop a way of, of measuring the, 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 the mass of a crown. And he was sitting in the bath to think about it and he was holding the crown in his hand and he realised the bath water was rising. Now, he didn't plan that. He didn't think, I'm going to do an experiment here. Instead, he observed what was happening around him and, and from that got the idea, from that got the spark, was able to work out how to apply that and went running off naked down the street to... Um, <laughs> to ram loads of people are screaming apparently eureka um i don't know how true all of that is but it's that sort of sense that if you're in tune with your environment if you're willing to be open to see what happens without necessarily planning in advance and you're responding to that then that can give new thoughts and generate new ideas in terms of material and artistic creativity it allows you to get the most out of the materials that you're working with so i think it operates on more than one level so let's transfer what you just talked about to education. So if you're going to give an example of that to educators and you have been a teacher yourself, what advice would you give to them? So one of, one of the big things that I, that I look at sort of beyond the serendipity stuff in my work on problem solving and um, creative cognition is the idea of knowing through doing which I think will probably resonate with quite a lot of the educators that might be listening to this, that the best way to know something is to start from a position of unknowing which all people do before they encounter a concept they, they are in an unknowing position they don't know and then rather than do knowing through being told just knowing through doing through playing and through exploring and being able to be open and receptive to what comes out of that 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 play and that exploration I think is really important and it's allowing that knowing to come out through doing and allowing as well a state of unknowing to be quite a productive state because it leads to knowing Listening to this, I'm starting to reflect back to an episode that we had with Vlad Glavino in the first season of the Fueling Creativity podcast, who introduces a number of different approaches in his work around social cultural theories for creativity. And so when we think about the pandemic and the disruption that caused to a teacher's environment, they were thrust into a situation where they had to use new tools in a new environment. And so listening to these, this conversation, it's making me think that does a disruption to it like this to an environment increase or facilitate incidences of, of serendipity? That's a really interesting question. And so I personally see serendipity as a disruptive force 
there's there's some debate um, within the research literature exactly what the role is. But I, I see serendipity as the moment because it involves an accident. So it's the moment when you're disrupted from your environment. You, you become aware of your environment. So it's the opposite to a flow state, which I'm sure some of your listeners have come across the idea of a flow state. Serendipity is sort of the opposite to that, because if you're in a flow state, you can't really have an accident because you sort of wander through the world quite happily. Um, and serendipity involves that accident, it involves that disruption. So I think very much when your flow state is disrupted by something, there is the opportunity for that disruption to become a happy accident. But I also think there's a level of happy naivety about, about suggesting that it's great, we could all just, you know, this, this bad thing happened, but we can all make the most of it, a sort of Panglossian-like optimism. And actually what often happens as well, I think we have to accept, and this is very hard to do, that if you're going to have that disruption, the flip side of serendipity will always be something negative or failure. And trying to accept the role of failure because you want to design learning experiences or you want to design opportunities in which disruption happens, something happens and you, you can teach people to take advantage of it. But, off, but sometimes it just won't work. So I think that's also really important. If you're, if you're educating for serendipity, you also have to educate for, for, for failure or for the times when serendipity doesn't work and allow people to develop resilience to that. And, and I think that last part to continue this theme, during the pandemic, teachers were forced to use new technology. And so, again, pulling back to social cultural theories, how we perceive objects in our environment, how we respond to these incidences, obviously can take us on a, a journey of, that, that leads to a creative outcome. And so I'm thinking about that teacher that for the first time is having to use a tool a new tool, or perhaps having to use an existing tool, but in a new way, and they stumble across a new function of that tool that they haven't used before. They begin to experiment and explore that tool or function. And they say, oh, they have that eureka moment. I know how I can use this to address this problem during this situation. And it might crash and burn. But in other instances, it goes on to address a problem that then other colleagues say, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to do this as well. And I think that what I'm now curious about is you reference the state of flow. How do we go about in education creating more situations where teachers will stumble across something new? Because, of course, we can, and I like the word using, using the word flow, we can stay in a, a state of flow that is somewhat comfortable and safe for us. And we don't, we're not always going to be presented with a pandemic situation that makes us stumble across these new technologies. So... What do we do outside the pandemic? Um, I think really tolerance of failure is really important. There seem, there's quite often a high cost on every interaction and more and more. I mean, I'm talking from a UK perspective and what I know about educators in the UK, but every interaction has to have a specific learning objective, lesson plans have to be prepared and things like that. And I'm sure, I know you've had Ron Baghetto on the show as well. So I've, I'm sure I've talked to him a lot about our, our feelings about how that can that can really disrupt um, an actual sort of the opportunities to respond to things that happen in the moment. So my favourite pandemic creativity story isn't a teacher creativity story. It's a student creativity story. The one where they all somehow decided across the world to rate Google Classroom under one on the App Store. Did you hear about that one? No, please share. So Google Classroom was used by all the, you know, when everybody had to switch online really fast, Google Classroom was used by a lot of educational establishments. And the students realised that if an app gets rated below one, it gets dropped off Google's app store. 
when you think about how mass communication is it's a story of everything creativity someone came up with the idea mass communication within 24 hours it had more ratings on the app store than any other app and it was going down 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 because all the students were trying to rate it at zero so that we dropped off the app store so they couldn't have any classes anymore um, and then google dropped it from being rated as well and it's one of those wonderful stories because it's it's this this great communication you know flashing across the world like happened with some of the bookings I know some of the Trump rallies and people blocked books didn't they and they managed to book all the tickets so fewer people turned up and things like that I've, I, I love those stories that's actually my favorite response to adversity is all the students deciding they would just get rid of Google Classroom I do think that one of the problems with teaching in the pandemic was that well some of the educators that I know also felt that they were not just having to teach the children but also within the parental home knew that they were being watched and observed often by parents which then made it much more difficult as well to take those risks so they're dealing with juggling with new things and failing in front of parents is is is, is hard so there's to be a tolerance of failure across from all people that are involved within within that sort of education trajectory sometimes it doesn't work sometimes you try something new and it doesn't work and that's probably going to be okay but how we develop that tolerance, I don't know, because it is very hard. When something doesn't work, it's very hard. You feel awful. You're stood in front of a classroom or you're on a screen and something doesn't work or you feel people are judging you. So it's much easier then to be safe and to carry on in the flow state. It's interesting having this conversation. I don't know about you, Cindy, but I always think about serendipity as that eureka moment, this this experience that you have that suddenly leads to something incredibly positive and impactful on your environment. And here we are having a conversation as well about serendipity can sometimes be associated with with failure. I don't know if you've got some thinking about that, Cindy. I know before beginning this conversation, I hadn't really thought about I hadn't really thought about that relationship between serendipity and failure. I hadn't either. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying, Wendy, is it seems like you're going along your path as you as you see it. And then all of a sudden there's a disruptor, which is serendipity. And it could either be successful and you could you know, create something new, which is sort of where the creativity piece comes in, right? Where it creates something new and it could be great, or it can create something new and not be great. And I think about my own children as a parent, and I have two children, one who is 13 years old. When the pandemic hit and he was thrown into online learning, he absolutely thrived. And now he wants to go back to online learning. And and it's actually made me rethink, could I homeschool him? Could I put him into a context in which he can just have tutors because it has been much more successful than I would have ever anticipated before that. And then I think on the flip side, my daughter, she just said, I need to be in school and this isn't working for me. So we, you need to get me back into school. So why I bring that up is because I think that I've always looked at serendipity as something that's sort of glorious and beautiful and it creates something new. But what you're doing for me, Wendy, is re reshaping that, as Matthew mentioned. What I love is your question around how do we become more comfortable with discomfort and failure? And I think over the pandemic, something that I've seen, and I'd be curious if both of you have seen this, is much more empathy toward others in not succeeding or empathy toward others in having a hard time or saying, I need a break. Um, so I think we've become much kinder to one another as human beings, but I'm curious if you have seen the same types of things. What we've done is we've broken down some of the boundaries by bringing everybody into our homes. 
we've definitely broken down some of the boundaries. So you you no longer um, it's no longer weird to sit at home and have the conversation at home, have a child on your lap, maybe if you've got younger children, a pet might be might might become whatever they might be, and then that necessarily makes us more human, doesn't it? So you're more likely to feel sympathetic towards somebody. I'm never 100 percent sure that's the, if that's the, the best thing. I think for some some families have thrived on that. Other families, the lack of boundaries between what might be a professional and a personal has maybe had maybe had a more negative impact. I'm not too sure. And in, in fact, we are planning on next March, I think, the Serendipity Society, just to do the two the two year anniversary from when we all realised it went wrong. Um, we are planning to host a debate on serendipity lost or found in terms of has that has the pandemic increased serendipity or has it decreased serendipity because there's been debates on either side of, of, of the spectrum really so people thinking that the role of the the way that people have been mixing less means that you might have had less opportunity for serendipitous encounters but there's been a real um, hierarchical flattening as well so people that used to be excluded from from debates or from meetings, we're, we're able to come, we're able to attend more. But um, one thing we noticed was, and this seems really minor, but I think it makes a difference. I think it probably makes a difference to educators as well. It certainly made a difference to me with some of my bigger lectures, is that I would give lectures to sort of 150, 200 people, and I very rarely knew people's names. As soon as you move online, you know everybody's name because their names are all out underneath them, right? And that makes a massive difference in lots of ways to how you interact with people. And in, in meetings as well, you, whereas it used to be only the important people whose names were known, who, who, who could easily have a voice, there was a, there was a, there was a hierarchical flattening. The chat box became really important. Anyone could access the chat box. If you weren't comfortable talking, if you weren't comfortable unmuting, you could then access the chat box. And then that would be your chance to get in. And certainly for some of the students that I've taught, the use of the chat box has been really important. And now we're back to face to face. I have kept a Mentimeter, which they can access on their phones and allows them to have a question box that runs the whole way through so that if they don't feel comfortable interrupting me, they can type it in there and then I can come back to it. So it's it's interesting because I think there's, pluses and minuses for, for all of these things um, in terms of how it's worked and how it's interacted. And exactly as you said, it's, it's a pretty much as well a relational phenomenon. It's that for some people, one accident will be really positive. The same accident can be really positive. And for other people, it can be really negative. Probably the most interesting people or the, most, the, the way that my research is driving at the moment is the neutral people, which is the people that don't notice it. Um, and what I found is significant about, so I do quite a lot of lab-based work, generating accidents and seeing how people react to them. And what I've found is most people don't notice the accidents. Uh, I do problem-solving work, and you can pretty much give people the answer to a problem, and they won't notice it unless they're in the right cognitive state to do so. And this, is, this has been um, documented for quite a while now in terms of what we call the hints in, um, in, in problem solving. And you can't really give people hints to problems um, unless they already know the answer. And if they don't already know the answer, the hints become really useless. So what I'm trying to do at the moment, one of the things I'm trying to disentangle is, is the point in which you are ready and receptive to take advantage of the hints and the accidents the environment will throw up to you. 
And I think a lot of that has a lot to do with, and again, it's it's discomfort. Um, <laughs> I always think when, when people say what do you do, and I say I do serendipity, creativity, and possibility, and then all I talk about is discomfort and failure, um, they probably think they've been sold the wrong thing. But once you're stuck and, and you're in that, that uncomfortable cognitive state of being stuck, you know when your head really, really hurts and you don't know what you're going to do and you're about to give up, that's the point when those moments in the environment are often most likely to be accepted because you start searching, looking for the answer. Whereas before you get into that uncomfortable state, you people are pretty much um, blind to anything you throw at them. I have video evidence of people actually generating the answer to the question randomly and ignoring it, and then two minutes later, making it themselves. So that, that's where I think it's really interesting. And in terms of then educating as well, how you can allow people to get into that state of not knowing, the discomfort of not knowing, awareness of your own weakness. So then you can most take advantage of moving forward. I have a couple of follow-ups to that because I think this is really fascinating and I'm going to kind of move this into kind of like a design perspective or a design situation. Before I do that, I want to just reference that we had a really great conversation with Ron Bigetto who reminded us that, you know, learning is sometimes uncomfortable. And it's now something that I share with all of my students at the beginning of the semester is that as I engage them in a design process, there's going to be times where it's going to be uncomfortable, you're going to struggle, I haven't used the word head hurting. But I can tell you that one of my student groups last week, their heads was hurting, they were very frustrated. And so what I'm curious about is this idea of noticing. As I look and reflect at the challenges that I present to my students, when they're faced with that situation where they don't know what to do next, they feel that there's not an answer, you're completely right. There are some students that kind of close down and become less open to pursuing, to believing and having faith that somewhere out there, there is an opportunity for them to move forward. And they don't move forward and, and it crashes and burns. And then there are other students who perhaps it's perseverance. They are willing to be open and try and pursue that option. And what's really interesting from an educator perspective is what's my role in that? So that's my question to you. What's my role in that in that moment? And, and, and I really wish I could, I could answer that easily and succinctly because I would really like to know. It's really where, in fact, on Monday... I'm running a study exactly exploring the dimensions of on-pass and the dimensions of that feeling of being stuck. Some of the learning literature talks about hopeful and hopeless on-pass. But if you have a hopeful on-pass, you feel that you might be able to get the answer. Whereas if it's hopeless, then um, then you do give up. Um, in cognitive psychology, it's that that's that that cognitive state is theorised as being unidimensional. You're just stuck. And there hasn't really been a, a lot of thought given to what it means to be stuck and how it means to move out of that state. So I, so I spent nearly all of my teaching career um, looking at people who, who, who's, whose heads hurt um, and, and we get to the end of it. But again, actually, one of the things that I always do, and uh, in fact, I'll be doing it um, on Monday, is I um, tell them to break the statistic software. So that's our first. So they're, in, they're meeting the statistic software on Monday. And the first thing they have to do is try and break it. They have half an hour. I really think that we talk a lot about what it means to learn something, but we don't really discuss what it means to not know something, to be comfortable with not knowing, 
and to be comfortable with failing and to be comfortable with breaking things. And if you're scared of failing, if you're scared you're going to break the software, then you see people like like you genuinely see people trying to do the software. The first time I thought, and they would they would start moving the mouse with their eyes closed because they were so scared it was going to explode. So well, let's try and explode it first. If that's your greatest fear, your greatest fear the software is going to explode. Well, we'll get it out of the way now. It's not going to explode. One day it will, and then my university will will hate me, and I'll probably lose my job. I'm sorry to dominate this and kind of stay in the, in the same place, but I, I think this is really relevant to the discussion and education because when you're talking about statistics, my mind is is sitting there now reflecting on the, the struggles that my fifth grader has and I have as I try and work him through the homework. And it's interesting because I've been talking about I began the conversation relating my experience with design where I feel like there's multiple right answers and it's really a case of identifying one and moving forward. Rightly or wrongly, my mindset when I'm when I'm working on that worksheet is that there's only one right answer. And I can't see it. I can't I don't know how to get to it. And I just feel that that sense of there's only one right answer contributes to to me and, and possibly my fifth grader shutting down a little bit more than we might do when it's like a design challenge where there could be lots of right answers. It's a threshold, isn't it? And and you can't get there through you feel like you can't get it through doing because you can't get them incrementally. You can't get it half right. We, we have the same thing with multiple choice questions. Multiple choice questions, I think, throw students far more than an essay question often because they because they they get paralysed exactly like you said by the by, by the right wrong. Everything seems to fall on 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 that on that line, and then the knowing through doing is harder because that that implies a process, whereas a right wrong implies you know it or you don't know it. And it's always in maths, isn't it? If you if you if you know how to do it, you never want to show you're working. I'm not naturally gifted at maths, and I have to think really, really hard about what I do mathematically. So I have to show my working, and then showing my working gets me to the right answer. But I can't just jump to that right answer. If that makes sense, I have to do the knowing through doing. Whereas my my husband, he can't do the doing bit. He doesn't even know what steps he takes to get there, right? He just goes, well, that's the answer. And then looks at me and I'm sitting there pensing. But that's why I teach statistics, because I can't do it naturally myself. And I, I often find that it's, it's easier to teach something that you have to think about. And it reminds me that I think as educators, it's really important to model away. So if we can build a culture of discomfort as the norm or failure as the norm and model that as educators. So what I like about what you're saying, Wendy, is, you know, I struggle with math or math doesn't come naturally to me. And so I'm going to show you exactly, break break it down, exactly the steps that I take. And there's going to be points that are going to be uncomfortable and I might make a mistake and that's okay. So getting people more comfortable with the discomfort and doing that by modeling the way. That's my first point. My second point is around when you're at that point of discomfort, what are the benefits of taking a break? And, you know, as you mentioned, taking the bath, which is always the notable moment of incubation, but, you know, going to take a shower or bath or going for a walk and just taking a break from it so that your brain, which is hurting, can sort of just relax and the benefits of that. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. It actually made me think maybe of some of the literature on inspiration. So to go sort of sort of more broadly creativity, what you do if you take a break, you change your your external stimuli often. That's often what happens. So you talked about 
you at each break you talked about was shifting your physical space. Sometimes we take a break by staying in the same physical space and shifting from one document to another, but we all know it doesn't work as much as getting up and completely changing our environment. So we then increase, it's, it's, it's a very natural thing to do. You're stuck, you increase the range of things that might get you out of being stuck. So you go for a walk and then you, there's all sorts of things that you might see there when you go for a walk. And so there's a lot of links between inspiration and serendipity in terms of you're in that state where you're you're seeking for an answer and you put yourself in a position where there's a lot more things that are out there that then might come in so i i think taking a break i think taking a break can be really useful because you're increasing that now you can mimic that in a learning environment by switching activities by changing up the range of things that are coming in the the idea behind on pass or being stuck is that you've exhausted all possible options you know that's the point of pure you've depleted yourself there are no possible options you've explored every pathway there is so a rest or a change is just going to increase the options that you can start exploring again so i think that's one of the useful moments of that you referenced the word luck in your first response and so when i'm working with my students quite often we we talk about luck from from a career perspective And I kind of present this statement that perhaps other people have heard before, which is that luck equals preparation meeting opportunity. And so I say to my students, you can't always control the opportunities that come your way. But what you can do is you can be prepared. So when that opportunity does come your way, you're in a a good position to maximize your chances of success. So from that perspective, I'm just wondering, is there a way that we can teach for serendipity? And to a certain extent, is serendipity part of that kind of like being aware of the opportunities when they come their way? Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. I think, I think that's what makes serendipity a powerful tool is that it, it relies on a prepared mind and it relies on this idea of sagacity, of wisdom, of using the accidents that come to you and taking advantage of them. Samantha Copeland, who's my co-chair of the Serendipity Society, she um, she would be grumpy with me right now if I didn't mention the importance of um, networks. So she works a lot on how serendipity is really facilitated by, by networks that are around you. And there's a lot of, um, within, she works a lot on scientific discovery rather than creativity. Um, sort of in its pure form, these moments of serendipity scientific discovery, such as penicillin or things like that, are actually often generated when you trace them back through large, large social networks. And they emerge not just from one person's idea or one person's mind or one person in the environment, but instead a whole group of people. And I think my understanding of most creative professional trajectories is it's that as well. It's not, it's not just that they happen to meet the right person, but there's also the right people around them as well. That sort of that, that, that extended network. And, and often as well, in this case, the role, some people's roles of things that may be more emotional support or, or some levels of practical support are underplayed because of narratives and things that we have. So I think, yes, you can coach with serendipity, but part of that means um, teaching for networks and for network building and network generating, which I think is a really important part of it. Wendy, this has been such an interesting conversation. We really appreciate you coming on to the show. Now, we end every show with asking our guests for three tips that you would give educators to help them bring creativity or serendipity into their classrooms. Okay, so obviously you probably the first one would be comfort with failure. So comfort with failure and comfort with discomfort. Generating interesting environments where there are many different moments of inspiration. So when those pathways feel depleted, you could increase more pathways. 
for some reason my mind's gone completely blank on number three and that's really weird and I can't think of any I don't know why and I had them all written down and now I can't find the piece of paper um it doesn't help so yeah failing at coming up right at the very end failing at coming up with something modeling failure in a very clear way to people around you so that even when you think you can think quickly no I can't think of <laughs> I've taken away networking, though. I, I, I've taken that away. I mean, I, I think when I'm talking about preparedness with, with students, the, the idea of making sure you're exposing yourself to as many experiences as possible, and that includes people. And in, in fact, actually, inspiration, annoyingly for me, because I like my research to do with things and objects, most serendipity comes from interactions with people, not with things, it appears. So this concludes the throwback episode with Dr. Wendy Ross. Stay tuned for our upcoming episode with Dr. Howard Gardner. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This episode was produced by Creativity and Education in partnership with WarwoodClassroom.com. 